Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor David Eikenberry, who was the Chair of Finance at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and the Associate Dean of the Executive Programs. Later, he served as a Dean of the Leeds School of Business at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and now uh, serves as a full professor in the school. He was an early pioneer among researchers examining long-horizon stock returns, particularly returns subsequent to major corporate news events. Much of his work relates to behavior finance and the extent to which news is incorporated into market prices. His most noted work has studied open market stock repurchase programs. Welcome, David. Good morning, Gil. Um, so you have a paper, uh, I guess it hasn't been published yet, but it's coming out and it's entitled The Persistent Decline in Asset Utilization and the Investment Q Paradox. And um, you're, you're talking about the Tobin Q um, in this paper. Um, so before we get into it, uh, who was Professor Tobin and uh, what exactly is Tobin's Q? Great question. Um, Jim Tobin is uh, one of the most uh, famous economists uh, uh, in the 20th century. He spent quite a bit of time at MIT. He actually spent some time as well. Um, but he had this very insightful idea that um, a company's uh, opportunities in the future uh, would be, uh, would reveal themselves in the valuation of the company. And that's a very common theme, of course, um, throughout economics and finance. But uh, if you then take that valuation and you compare it to the replacement costs of building that company, let's say, so you get a ratio, that ratio might typically be, say, in the neighborhood of one. So the, if the replacement build the company was 
in a competitive market, the same as its market value, you'd get a ratio of one. And so the idea was, was that if that ratio, um, that would happen because the market was seeing great right. growth opportunities in the future. And conversely, if that ratio was getting low, that was a, a sign that maybe uh, the market was seeing um, a lack of opportunities in the future. So for the better part of 50 years, um, financial economists have really latched on to the, what's called the Q ratio or, the, or, Q, yep. or Tobin's Q or Q more simply as a measure of growth okay, options okay. and growth opportunities. So the, the numerator of this ratio is a market value of an asset. It could be a company. It could be the overall stock market. The denominator is the replacement value, um, which in conventional companies could be proxied by um, tangible assets, uh, PPE, uh, those types of things. But um, in today's regime, where we have most of the value tied up in information, that the denominator is more intangibles, right? R&D, SDNA, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So you're really picking on kind of a, 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 a weak underbelly of, of Q. Um, the ideas motivating Q, of course, were really robust in the 1950s, 1960s, when when Jim Tobin was was visualizing this this metric. Uh, and and at that time, of course, the our uh, uh, our accounting metrics are pretty good at capturing uh, the replacement value and historic value of those assets. Uh, but today it's getting it's getting more and more difficult. Um, there are some tools and techniques that um, are readily used, uh, commonly used in the in the academic community to deal with this problem. But I think everybody would confess that even though we do our best to deal with it, we may not have a perfect solution. But we do we do make accommodations for it. And in this work that you're referencing. Uh, we 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 work pretty extensively. Yeah, so uh, intangibles are then proxied very simplistically, proxied by R and D and SGNA type investments. Uh, presumably, R and D goes into patents and other intellectual property and information assets, and SGNA is going into mm -hmm. branding and other other type right. of value the company is generating, right? So that's right. So that when, that's when right. It is uh -huh. greater than one a market value over replacement value greater than one. Uh, the idea here is that if you increase the denominator, if you put a dollar into the 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 assets uh, of the firm, market is going to value it at more than one dollar. So this is almost like a money machine, right? So if it's more than one, um, it it is to the firm's interest. To invest more and more that's idea that's right that's right and um the firm not only may the, may the firm invest more but but competitors to the firm may invest more as well so um and and the idea is that the market would be rationally understanding that these new entrants would right. come into the economy as well and as as new entrants come into the economy that puts more goods and services out there um, that tightens up margins and that reduces profits over time. And then all of a sudden you can see the value of the firm 
shrinking and all of a sudden uh, Tobin's magic Q ratio has this upside pressure pushing it lower back in that direction of we'll just use one, we'll call one as some kind of a normal yeah. uh, mark. Um, it's not necessarily best to think of it that way, but you can see that there'll be upside pressures to bring it down. And conversely, Gil, if if um, a, a market is oversaturated and we have too many entrants, too many players in a given industry, let's say, um, there's too much competition, there's, there's, there's uh, negative rents yeah. being generated, if you will, um, uh, that's going to that's gonna compel managers to start liquidating assets and, and getting out. And that, that will therefore create kind of a lower boundary that maybe pushes that Q ratio back in the direction of that, that normal mark, if you will. So there, the idea is that the market has these natural buffers for uh, having firms invest and disinvest and competitors also investing yes. and divesting as well right to kind right. of so keep in general then, balance in any industry if you see a queue more than 1.0 that indicates that market has a desire or a hunger for more investment to go into that industry if it's less than one it's basically telling the the, the firms to disinvest or um, or not invest at the very least Right. All right. I, I wouldn't get too hung up yeah. on the number 1.00, you know, in a, in a hard way. But I think the idea is that as Q ratios are going up, um, it's it's inducing, um, as you say, more uh, a greater incentive to invest versus Q going down. OK, so it, a is reason it, is to it divest. Really the, the growth in Q that is more important. Yeah. It's really that. It's really the change when we yeah. think about new investment happening. Um, it's it's seeing it's 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 watching Q expand, and particularly seeing it at relative relatively high levels or relatively low levels, and that's kind of what um, that's kind of opening the door to the problem that my colleague and I saw um, in terms of trying to to start on our paper. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so, um, so, but you found that the expectation of investment rising and falling uh, with uh, with Q is not in the data, right? That's a paradox. Yeah. Well, that's that's um, so that that's the paradox. Let me provide put put just a little bit of color on that. Um, so. So Jim Tobin came out with this theory. This it, it's really an yeah. it's very an elegant it's a very elegant theory. Um, he came out with it 50 years ago in in, uh, in 1969, and it it really captured the hearts and minds of lots of economists around the world because of how elegantly um, it it conveys what market players ought to be doing and not doing, and. Uh, so for years, it's been kind of the gold standard of, of what, what we ought to be seeing in corporate finance in terms of new growth and new investment. The puzzle uh, has been that the data has not complied and, you know, for the better part of, of 50 years. Now, 
to Jim Tobin's credit in 1969, we we actually didn't have the computers and the accounting right. horsepower to even try to measure this. Right. Um, but, you know, once we got into the 1980s, we we did and we started to try to look at the uh, the evidence and uh and so for years um we've just had this puzzle about when q goes up why why doesn't investment go up and when q goes down you know why doesn't it go down and and for years the thought was well maybe we're mismeasuring q maybe there's you know uh you know we were talking about intangibles a moment ago maybe that's creating a lot of measurement yeah. error noise uh um, uh, uh, some very heavy hitters uh, at at places like Harvard and MIT also were raising questions about well maybe the market isn't smart enough to foresee you know we're putting a pretty heavy burden on the market to understand all these potential economic forces and rationally price the implications of these uh, these market moves maybe that's just asking too much of market participants. We, we found actually a very different uh, solution to this. Um, what we did uh, is, uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about my colleague, uh, Gustavo uh, Gurulian at uh, Rice University. R Gustavo and I have been colleagues yeah. forever, and we were at a conference one time uh, down in Texas, and um, we, we were listening to a dinner speaker talk about corporate investment and and what companies were uh, doing and not being able to do in terms of generating earnings. And none of this made sense to us. And so we, we began to, to use an accounting decomposition of what was driving mm -hmm. earnings growth in U.S. companies. And in the process of doing that, we kind of stumbled into understanding what was, what was and what was not driving investment. And we, we were quickly replicating the results over the last 50 years that Q and investment were not related. But what we did find uh, was that if you take the Q ratio and if you use um, a DuPont-like decomposition analysis, so for example, uh, the DuPont company years ago took the return on equity measure and then they they began to decompose that into four or five different variables that when multiplied together yeah. gave you the return on equity. But by separating it apart, you could look at each component separately. Well, we took that same idea and applied it to the Q ratio. And so our first variable dealt with the, this valuation theme. But rather than take the value of the firm relative to its replacement value, uh, we took the value of the firm relative to its total earning capacity, which is not unlike, say, a price-earnings ratio. Then we, the second term was a profitability uh, ratio. So it's the profits of the firm divided by its sales. And then the last term was uh, asset utilization, which is the sales of the company or the sales of an industry or the sales of an economy relative yeah. to the total assets of whatever entity. So those three things, if I multiply them together, I get the Q ratio back. 
But by separating it into three different items, we could actually look and see how independently each of these three items affects investment. And um, that completely changed the, that completely kind of opened up the mystery of, uh, or resolved the mystery, I should say, of, of why Q and investment were not working before. Each of these three things has a little bit of power, but it's really not the market component that's driving it at all. It's really this sales to asset ratio, or another way you could think of it is as right, uh, right. capacity utilization. Um, that appears to be the driving uh, reason why companies so, are so investing that, or not investing. So just to make it very simple, um, Q can be, you know, it's, it's maybe similar to P over B, right? Price over book. And you take P over B and you say, Correct. you know, P over price, PE ratio, price over earnings is valuation. Earnings over sales uh, is right. sort of profitability. So uh, PE ratio multiplied by earnings yep. over sales uh, gives you P over S, right? Price, price to sale, which is also a valuation metric. Correct. And the third yep. aspect there is sales over yep. book value. So... So that is what you're calling asset, asset utilization. How much is the firm generating in sales using the assets it has in the book? Uh, obviously, ignoring intangibles just just to just to conceptually to to understand it. How much is the firm generating in sales? That's uh, right. Based on the assets it has in the book, and and what you're finding is that that ratio has been declining almost monotonically for, yeah. Well, yeah, so that's right, Gil. So so step one was to understand the drivers of investment. Uh, but step two was to try to find out why uh, investment has been declining so precipitously over the last 40 years. Ever since uh, the mid-1970s, investment in the U.S. has been declining. And that was what was kind of creating this paradox. How could it be that investment in the U.S. is falling while the Q ratio has been rising? Uh, and when you look at it graphically, Gil, I mean, the, the, yeah. the numbers just kind of jump off the page. Uh, and of course, because of that graph, that's why the, the relation between Q and investment was broken and why, why economists couldn't figure it out. But what we're finding is that uh, what's also been going on for the last 40 plus years has been that the sales to asset ratios in the macro, in the broader economy are declining over time. And they've, they've yeah. basically fallen in half. So it's a it's a huge decline. Uh, the problem in the U.S. is not that we have uh, too little investment, as a lot of lawmakers would argue today. Uh, but the unfortunately, the problem is is we actually have quite a bit of excess capacity. Yeah. In, so in so we had this sort of a the internet bubble right in two thousands. Uh, so is it that firms overinvested? Uh, during that time, and you know those expectations never materialized. Now all the firms are sitting on top of a large asset base, and 
you know, they don't really need that much, that much of an asset base, given the sales that they're generating. Is that, is that a problem? Uh, I, we, we, yeah. we looked at that pretty carefully in our analysis. The, the, there's no doubt that the internet bubble is a peculiar window of time. Um, uh, and investment did increase yeah. rather remarkably during that window. But it's not clear at all that that is the driving issue or the driving force. Um, uh, it this is really much. Uh, it's a much broader macro trend that that extends well beyond that. So, so the observation that um, investment rates are falling, it is not in in uh, congruence with what you would expect from a Q theory, um, and and you went looking for what might be causing it, right? So one of the things that, that come up all the time is um, how managers take actions inside the firm. Uh, they look at things in a very short-term window. They are interested in maximizing their bonuses. And, uh, you know, and decisions are never really made optimally uh, to, to maximize shareholder value. So that is, is that something that you're finding in the data or not? That's a good question. Um, we're unfortunately with the the level of detail, the kind of data we have, and, and the detail that it has, we're not able to really tease apart whether companies have uh, perverse incentive structures. That you know, perhaps that may that may be an extension we can get at in in future years, but. Um, on the whole, we don't think. Well, clearly, we know that some incentive schemes dealing with uh, particularly managers who are motivated by earnings per share, for example, to set their bonuses. Clearly, we know that, that that's an element that's out there. Um, but it's not clear that it's a, a major driving force. As best we can tell with our data, it appears that many of these companies that are buying back stock appear as if they were going to be buying stack back stock anyway. Uh, uh, there are there are many new studies that are going to be spawned by what uh, Gustavo and I are are coming across, and one of these questions is clearly going to be what kinds of firms are are trying to shrink their asset base via stock buybacks or dividend payments, and is it being done rationally, uh, or is it being perversely uh, influenced for better or for worse by um, poorly designed compensation plans. All of these are really interesting questions, but currently, you know, at a, at a, at a, you know, 50,000 foot view, uh, these macro trends are dominating these yeah. potential short term. So if I understand the chart correctly, David, um, correct me if I'm wrong. So the investment rate has been falling from the 70s. I mean, there are some, you know, localized variations uh, in certain time periods, but in general, uh, from the 70s at 20% to nearly 7% uh, uh, more recently. Uh, so it has been falling um, from the 70s to the internet bubble, Q has been increasing quite dramatically. 
Uh, and then the market, uh, the bubble burst, uh, Q fell to from, from more like 3.5 to close to 2.0. And it has been staying at about 2.0 um, uh, for a period of time. Uh, but investment rate continues to fall. Is that being in the chart? That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, um, if you look, uh, just to kind of quote some numbers here, if you look from, say, 2008, Q is just a little bit north of 1.5. Um, and, and in 2018, which is the last year we had in our sample, it, it had risen about 30% to just below two. But during that same window of time, investment fell from about 11% of, of assets to about 7% of assets. So again, a very huge fingers. shrinkage. Yeah. What, what, do you, what, what um, is your gut feel as to what happened in this shock that we, we are going through or we just went through? Um, what, what do you think, if you were to look at the data 2019, 2020, what will we see in terms of Q? that investment rate, just, just, uh, just as a speculation. Well, I, you know, if we, if we were to, ha I, I think we would continue yeah. to see more of the same Gil. Uh, I think we would see investment continuing to climb. Now, of course, if you look in the last uh, 90 days, investment has fallen right. off a cliff. I mean, uh, capacity utilization in the U S has fallen on a, off a cliff. Um, so you know, obviously investment today is shrinking due to tremendous uncertainty and, and of course a huge shock to demand. But I think it's puzzling that, you know, if you look at the stock market today, you know, here we are in June of 2020. And by some metrics, the stock market has never been valued higher right. than yeah. it is today. Uh, which it still begs the question, what what does the you know, what does the market see? There may be other dynamics that we just don't quite understand. But one of the dynamics we do know in 2020 is that the sales to asset ratios are continuing to go. Right. Ratios, whether you look at it from Tobin's Q or if you use something more akin to, say, a price earnings ratio, they've been generally rising over time. While investment's been falling over time, and of course that's the big paradox um, that's driving Tobin's Q. Uh, but via this decomposition, where we separate the valuation component, profitability, and asset utilization, we can really see more clearly that the reason investment is going down in the U.S. is that asset utilization is really coming down quite a bit. Yeah. Um, in the in the 1970s, it was actually going up a little bit, but right around 1979, it starts a gradual decline uh, and has been cut almost in half. And you see that whether you use um, tangible assets as your definition of of the value of the firm, or it it also you you see the same trends if you adjust for intangible assets as well. Yeah, so it, it's really puzzling right so the, the stock of assets that firms have uh it's an excess of what they need right that's what it looks like and yes and they have been they have been uh trying to reduce or reducing investment rate 
um and with the realization that they they got too much uh to uh to to actually generate the sales that they see and even with this continuous decrease in investment rate they still have a stock of assets that is too much is that what what we are seeing that's very that's yes that's exactly what we're finding ever since uh the 1980s um what we're finding is that uh asset gr- the growth in the asset base of the US has been growing faster than the growth in sales yeah and for example if you start from 1980 through 2018 uh sales have been outgrowing assets on the on the scale of about 2 to 2.5% per year mm. well in any one year that's not a problem but if you do that for four decades in a row um you're going to have an asset base that's that's just simply too large and that's what's that's really the the overall a uh, problem that's that's driving our economy today we again it it kind of circles back to this in comment i had earlier in our conversation that the the problem we have today is not that we have too little investment uh but rather we've accumulated too much over the the last 40 years right right so can we make any judgment or any uh, assumptions around management decision making here um you know uh, you you mentioned um you know some of the incentive problems that may exist in the firm but beyond that uh do we have you know sort of a, a decision making issue in the enterprise we may um uh it's it's going to yeah. require further investigation to see uh to to what extent that's really the case um to their <laughs> credit i think we should start with the positive before, before we swing to the negative on the positive side um the the data here is very very consistent with mm-hmm. what economic intuition would suggest So for example when uh when once you do this decomposition when valuations go up because the market sees promise in a new sector for example um you see more investment and we've we've seen this in all kinds of industries this result is is generally robust although valuation as i said at the outset is not the big driver the same is true with profitability as profitability goes up uh that too is a driver of investment more so compared to valuation that's all consistent with economic theory and rationale but this sales to asset ratio is really the key driver and its impact on investment is so predominant that it's swamping out the effect of of valuation and uh and profitability and that right, over right. time has really been shrinking uh but the good news is 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 that managers are appear to be rationally responding uh to these opportunities as economic theory would suggest now for example why are they over investing that's a whole <laughs> that opens up or or what appears to be over investing uh that opens up a, a very interesting question yeah. um we don't know uh it, you know is it due to incentive problems they have um is it because uh 
for example, one question we, we investigate, which we rule out is maybe mm. it's because our economy is aging. So for example, um, as you know, there's a, uh, some economists have this idea of the life cycle of the firm that as firms get older, they get a little bit more stale, less nimble, less able to respond to market opportunities. And so therefore, you know, maybe that's why the sales to asset ratios are falling. Um, we investigate this and we don't, we don't find that to be the case at all. Um, adjusting for size of the firm and adjusting for the age of the firm, uh, these results all tend to still be quite prevalent. So yeah. it's not clear that that's the driving issue. Um, what the, the only thing, you know, it's not due to mergers. Uh, we thought, you know, maybe there was a big merger wave in the, in the 80s and the 90s. Maybe that was creating hmm. uh, an accounting fiction, so to speak, where the assets of the firm would arbitrarily increase to, to accounting standards. But there was no economic shift, you know, going on. That doesn't seem to be uh, at issue. Nor does the the trend towards leasing appear to be issue an issue. Yeah. Nor does the trend towards automation. Uh, many of our industries in the U.S. Uh, have gone through quite a bit of of automation. Uh, and the idea with automation is is if if I take say, you know, if it say took ten people to generate uh, a given level of sales. And now I automate that process and I only need two people to generate that same level of sales. Sales would be the same in those two scenarios, but the assets in the latter case would be much higher due to automation. So therefore sales to assets would be going down over time. So we, worked, we looked um, pretty extensively at, at automation by looking at the amount of labor versus the amount of capital that goes into our economy mm. and the numbers just don't add up Gil. you can't you can't get uh, you can't get auto we know that automation is happening we you walk into a McDonald's and you you right. see automation when you order your Big Mac uh, today but those appear to be small nips and changes at the margin uh, there is some literature out there that's suggesting that for all this automation, uh, maybe we're just not seeing yeah, productivity so, gains uh, that would be commensurate with that. So, so to button up automation, it's just not clear yeah, so, at all that so automation is the to, issue. To push on that a little further, David, so is it possible that uh, companies invested into technologies that sort of became obsolete. So think about, you know, how we are applying artificial intelligence now, um, which is very different way of thinking uh, about automation. So this talk of assets that we are measuring in the firm, they're not really productive assets. And I'm including, I'm just making this, <laughs> making this hypothesis just to debate with you. Uh, I'm including uh, intangibles in there too. Right. So, you know, uh, firms with a lot of researchers, firms with a lot of branding type investments, all those intangibles, all of those things could be obsolete in the new economic regime that we are in, in which case, you know, the asset base that we are measuring becomes, like you say, more of an accounting uh, figment of imagination rather than a productive asset. 
you know, I, I think we can point to lots of examples like that where, you know, you you can say, look, those those trends ought to be happening, but uh, and, and maybe they are at work. But when you step back and you look at what's going on in the broader market, I mean, you still see this big erosion that's just not clear. For example, yeah, let's take Walmart. Um, and here's a company that uses lots of technology. Um, but in 1975, they had a sales to asset ratio of 3.7. Um, and in 2015, it had fallen to right. 2.5. Um, let's take uh, General Electric. They had 1.5 in 1975 and 0.3, uh, decline of close to 80% um, in 2015. Um, as, you, as you actually, we were so surprised by this result, we actually you know, drilled all the way down to the firm level and just looked at, say, the top 25 firms. And about 85% of, this, of these top firms all showed a remarkable decline. Procter & Gamble, uh, Johnson & Johnson, um, uh, Pfizer, uh, Lockheed Martin, Caterpillar, uh, uh, even Apple Computer, uh, which of course we we can't go back, yeah. we can't go all the way back, but you know, uh, Apple Computer's uh, sales to assets have actually been cut more than half over the last yeah. uh, thirty years. So there's something peculiar going on um, that we we kind of need to get our arms around, and it may be an amalgamation of a lot of, of things, whether they are. Uh, due to life cycle issues or due to um, due to uh, um, uh, technology. But one thing is pretty clear, uh, Gil, yes. and that is that sales are are right. contracting hard. And so one yeah. thing that Gustavo and I did do and and it's we just kind of knocked on the door to this solution. Um, but uh, uh, there's certainly a lot we need to understand, but economists are just now getting their head their head wrapped around changing yeah. demographics in the world. Um, uh, it used to be that um, uh, you know if you if you look over the last several millennia, you know population growth has been expanding mm -hmm. pretty rapidly, and our economy has really benefited from. From, from that expansion. Um, but in 1968, um, there was an inflection point in the rate of expansion. Um, uh, we went from uh, uh, growing at about, the, the planet growing at about uh, 2.5% per year. Um, that's been cut rather dramatically. And uh, we're actually going down to to uh, remarkably low levels that we haven't seen in in uh, many many years, and it could be that that we're just not um, so so the, our planet is still expanding, but it's in terms of population growth, but it's expanding at a much right. lower and slower rate, and it could be that as um, these you know <laughs> kind of like tectonic plate shifts to the extent that managers are not able to anticipate mm -hmm. this issue 
or to the extent that managers have a difficult time shrinking the firm. In other words, it's, you know, we, we, there's, we think of this as asymmetric investment. It's very easy to expand a company, but it's very right, difficult right. to contract it. Um, so it could be that uh, we lock ourselves into an asset base that we just don't need. And therefore, as our economy, as our, as our population begins to slow, ever so gradually, we're just not able to contract it fast enough. And that may be why sales to assets is falling. It's, um, uh, again, this, this notion of, of demographics affecting economic, uh, broader economic policies is, is, is a brand new subfield within economics just in yeah. the last few years. And this may be yeah, an that's a fascinating that. thing to think about, right? So what you're saying is that population growth is slowing all around the world. The growth is slowing. Uh, it's still increasing, but the growth is slowing. Uh, and you that's right. superimpose on that. I'm just um, I'm just making a speculation here that the 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 power to consume. Uh, in that population uh, is getting more, um, for lack of term, more varied. So, so you've got, you know, India and China making up uh, about, uh, I believe, about 3 billion people, 2.5, 2.7 billion people. And uh, that is where right. I think most of the population growth is. Uh, Europe is declining. Yeah, uh, U.S. I think is uh, right. Japan is definitely declining. U.S. I don't know, maybe flat. So, so it's not only that population growth is slowing, uh, but also within that population, I think the power to consume may be declining even faster. Is that possible? Yes, it is possible. And one one contributing factor for that is we're also aging at the same time. Um, uh, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, Gil, but it used to be here in the U.S., I think it was in the mid-70s, uh, the, the median age of the, pop, of the U.S. population was about 25 years of age, and today it's almost 35 right. years of age. Um, we are aging. Well, it turns out that as we age, right, right. we tend you to consume only, less. You can only deal with one device, so, not 10 of them. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So uh, so we're kind of getting a double whammy. There's fewer yeah. mouths to feed, and the yeah. mouths we have are consuming yeah, so, less. So that's a trend that we cannot really defeat if that is in fact true. So so, so if your hypothesis is true, then we will continue to see uh, decreases in sales growth. And, um, and so regardless of the denominator, regardless of the asset base, uh, managers will be forced to reduce investment rate regardless. I think we will. Um... You know, unless there's a uh, some kind of disruptive technology that that somehow, you know, recasts our economic mold, so to speak. If you look at the huge technology innovations over time, they have driven 
growth and opportunity, such as, for example, the railroads in the late 1800s, the growth of the interstate uh, automobile system in the U.S. in the in the 50s and 60s. Of course, the the move, the, the telephone, the radio, the television. These are all leapfrogging technologies that in small ways and in large ways drove business and of course the the uh, the emergence of the internet uh, kind of came around as one of those big uh, discrete jumps in 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 economic capabilities absent one of those uh big changes i i i think your prognostication unfortunately is right i think we're uh i think we're going to continue to see gradual declines in in sales and um, uh, and therefore lowering sales to asset ratios and and therefore a lower need to see major corporate revitalization. Yeah, and, you know, to, to make it, um, we'll, we'll get into the positive aspect of it in, in a minute. But to make it even worse, the the technology discontinuities that we expect to see at least uh, energy. Um, artificial intelligence, which is largely about productivity. Uh, all of those are really on the infrastructure side, not on the consumption side, right? And so, so mm-hmm. you know, uh, right. technology discontinuity, even if it arrives, uh, is going to make us even more productive, but it's not going to really increase consumption. So this observation could still remain the same, possibly. I, I think it possibly so, could be correct. So the summary of the, the paper, so you have a new tool here for people to, to really look at. For, for, um, for, for instance, you looked at, you know, one of the things that people mention is the share repurchase programs that companies run, and that has a negative influence on investment rate, but you find that that doesn't really explain it, right? <laughs> That's right. In fact, Gil, you know, to circle back to the very beginning of our talk, um, uh, it was around this very issue that that Gustavo uh, Grullion and I, we were listening to this talk in Texas, yeah. as I was telling you, and and the speaker was telling us that that buybacks were were a concerning issue. They were a big part of what was driving all of the earnings growth in. Uh, 2017, uh, and and um, uh, and it just sounded like financial alchemy to to me and Gustavo, and it it really raised our suspicion that what he was saying really didn't add up. Parts of what he said did add up, but um, that was what led us into this whole investigation of is buy our buybacks um, the root of the problem. We got we got steered off in the direction of understanding uh, Tobin's Q and decomposing it. But once we understood the decomposition of Q and how it affects investment, uh, we had this new tool. And so we turned around and went back to stock buybacks and said, you know, um, there's a lot of focus on buybacks. Uh, in 2019, there were several bills. Uh, in the U.S. Congress to to limit or prohibit buybacks are these are these yeah. good things or bad things and and the the uh, 
we know on the surface scale that buybacks alone are not right. driving the investment problem. And the reason for it is the, the amount of capital going through buybacks is not enough to offset the decline in capital spending that we see. The numbers just don't add up. It's, it's a factor of like right. three to four to one. So, so buybacks alone are not, you know, buybacks are not displacing investment in a dollar for dollar way, yeah. in, a, in a causal way. But the next thing we did is said, okay, well, let's let's control for what we know is a drives investment, which is, you know, to some extent valuation to a slightly more extent profitability, but to a large extent uh, uh, asset utilization. And what we found and then and then let's that in that same model, let's now put in uh, uh, this um, uh, payout ratio coming across mm -hmm. in the form of stock buybacks. And when you, uh, if you don't do that careful control, you'll, you will see that buybacks are associated with what appears to be declining investment. But if you do make those corrections, the buyback, the influence of buybacks totally goes away. There's no problem whatsoever. Um, in fact, the point estimates are positive, although they're not significant in a statistical sense. So what that's telling you is, yes, investment is shrinking while buybacks are going up, but it's not a clear, it's not clear at all that there's any association or, and certainly no causality that we can yeah. statistically show. Um, it appears again that these companies right. need to be shrinking anyway, uh, they would in, 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 say, in the 1950s or 1960s, um, if we were in that time period, mm -hmm. we would be doing this via dividend payments. But, mm -hmm. but uh, the, and the reason being that buybacks really didn't exist um, uh, to, to a large extent. They did, they, they did exist, but they weren't uh, ubiquitous in the 50s and 60s. They're much right, more common right. today, of course. So, so if I understand right. your... Um, your conclusions here, David. Uh, it seems to me that, uh, just correct me if I'm wrong, so there is a macroeconomic trend uh, in declining population growth rate, uh, declining consumption power in the world. And so we're going to continue to see the, the ability of firms to, uh, to generate sales decline because of that macroeconomic trend. Uh, and so because of that, um, they, we see that an asset utilization, capacity utilization declining because they have a stock of assets that are built up over the years and managers are currently um, responding to it by reducing investment rate. Um, would, that be, would that be the right conclusion? Yeah, I okay. think, okay. I think you, you have it, what, what do you think, uh, to conclude this uh, on this, David, what, what would you think is the, is the biggest insight from this and how people should use this tool for, you know, for other things that, that might be interesting? I think, uh, Gil, there's a host of questions that this tool can now help us um, uh, study. I'll give you just a couple of, of interesting questions. One is, um, 
there's a basic fundamental question about whether financial markets uh, channel capital to uh, yeah. their their best use. That's a very it's a very basic question, um, uh, and you know up until now the only tool we had to address that was to look at Tobin's Q. So we would ask questions like, well, if if industry X is seeing a rising Q, and industry Y is seeing a falling Q, are we seeing more capital go into X and less capital Reducing, going yeah. into or in fact coming out of why um that was the only tool we had and and we know that q is a poor um uh despite jim tobin's elegant theory we know that's a a poor tool to to tear into that question well we can now what by using a decomposition you know we can far more carefully dissect all that and uh, control for what's happening in the market, what's controlling for control, what's happening with profitability and control with existing capital uh, uh, utilization in given industries. And therefore see if now we have a much better way to see if the capital flows are, are happening in rational and appealing ways. So that that's just one example of how we could use this tool. Another example that uh, comes off of the investment side uh, rather than the corporate finance side is to look at um, what's happening to the stock market and yeah. stock market returns. We've known for um, many, many years that companies which tend to invest uh, aggressively tend to have poor stock returns over the next several years, you know, four, four to 10 years out into the future. Um, uh, in other words, in, uh, good capital investment, aggressive capital investment is not rewarded. Conversely, companies that uh, invest less tend to have higher stock returns. So one thing, uh, it's been a real puzzle. Um, it, it was presumed, for example, that well, maybe this is just due to managerial <laughs> hubris. You know, managers are just, you know, they're they're too aggressive in expanding the firm, and therefore these yeah. are these negative returns to um, high invest high investing companies are just uh, payback for bad managerial behavior. But it could be that we, by understanding the sales to assets dynamics going on here, maybe we can mm -hmm. tease this apart a little bit more carefully. You know, may, maybe this investment um, factor is really more tied into a capacity utilization issue, you know, that that'll be picked up by the sales to assets. So we think that there's several tools and techniques, but uh, regulators who want to think about tax policy, um, uh, you know, so, for example, should we grant uh, right. accelerated depreciation to uh advance uh, investment uh, there's all there's all kinds of tools and 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 and, and i should say yeah. policy questions that this tool can try to yeah, help address. yeah it's um but if the sales growth issue worldwide is a macro macroeconomic phenomenon that we cannot really change then then the question then becomes how do we maximize 
within that constraint, right, from a policy perspective. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's right. That's right. So again, you know, should we, um, uh, so if we return back to this this um, little micro application that Gustavo and I were working on on buybacks, um, uh, this push by uh, the in the U.S. Senate to outlaw stock buybacks no is um, yeah. no is a it's going to have no effect and b you know it, it's it's potentially stifling because while the macro economy yeah. may not be expanding, um, sub sub components of the economy are expanding. Uh, there's there's always little micro innovations underway. Um, and, you know, uh, if we limit the flow of capital by capping or prohibiting uh, buybacks, uh, you know, that, that capital is just going to have to figure out another way to flow into those yeah. investments. And it's going to happen. Um, just putting, a, you know, waving a, a mandate that says no more buybacks is not going to force investment to go up. And one reason we know this is to if you go back to the to Trump's. Uh, 2017 tax cut, uh, part of that tax cut was to repatriate um, capital that was um, trapped overseas. The tax laws in the U.S. um, made it difficult for companies to repatriate funds. Well, in 2017, uh, we had, you know, there was a, uh, you could think of it as a permanent tax holiday of sorts. And, and so we had tons of, of capital repatriated all at one time, and very little of that gill right. went into new investment. And that's exactly right. what we would expect, um, uh, given what's uh, you know given what's going on. Uh, so just turning on the spigot or or dropping capital in helicopters uh, is not necessarily going to. Uh, yeah, and, and as you as you also demonstrate, yeah. David, in the paper that uh, companies are rich in cash. It's not lack of capital. It, it just uh, no, it's not. Just uh, you know, there there is no reason uh, for investment. Yeah, that's right. They 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 hold more cash today than they've ever held before. So in in aggregate, we should say, of course. Um, uh, so it's 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 not. For, for lack yeah. of, uh, of capability. So this was great, David. Um, thanks so much uh, for spending time with me and uh, good luck with everything that you do. Well, you're more than welcome, Gil. And I look forward to following up with you in uh, in uh, future conferences. And that, uh, great. Thank you. 